Drilling fluids touch just about everything in the drilling process. We're here to deconstruct the drilling process and drilling fluid concepts to provide a deeper understanding of our industry. In each episode, we'll share information, talk to interesting people, and maybe share a few stories along the way. Welcome to The Flow Line, a production of AES Drilling Fluids, brought to you by Matt Offenbacher and Justin Gautier. And we're back. Welcome to another episode of The Flow Line. Matt, we finally got her. How are you doing today? I'm doing all right. How about yourself? I'm doing well. Now that we've done the old Nintendo blow trick, for anyone out there who used to play Nintendo, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And to give a little context here, we have our Zoom recorder, not Zoom over virtual, but Zoom, it's this... Basically, it's this little tool that you use to plug in your microphone and stuff and you record on. And sometimes I'll plug, the fl- not the flash drive, but the uh, memory card in there and it won't recognize it. So I got to plug it in, take it out, plug it in. And I decided to do the old Nintendo blow on the cartridge and blow inside the Nintendo trick. And it worked. So you can still use that trick today for some things, even though we've advanced in technology so much. So much, but only so much. <laughs> right. Yeah. You still got to go back. Matt, again... I haven't been watching, which is normal, but what's the latest and greatest on the baseball front? We're not mid-season, but we're getting like a quarter of the way there. I mean, it's, uh, I want the Astros to be doing better. Uh, it's, there's some frustrating baseball. I think some of it is like, they all need to click. Jose Altuve will be back soon. Where'd he go? Injured? Yeah. He's been injured the whole season. He broke his thumb during the world baseball classic. Got hit by pitch, had to have surgery, What? but he's doing his rehab assignment in Sugarland. And apparently they've just been drawing you know, like record crowds because everybody wants to see. Is that the Skeeters? Oh, was the, the Skeeters. Now it's the Space, Space Cowboys. Cowboys. Got it. So, yeah, Michael Brantley, who's near and dear to my heart, had some setbacks mm. where it's like, dang it. Like he was traveling with the team about to be activated and had like soreness in this shoulder he had surgery on. And it's like, oh, no, are we ever going to see him again? So I was very disappointed by that. And then Jose Abreu, everybody's worried, like, is he washed up or what? Because we paid him a bunch of money and he's not doing so good. What There's position does he play? First base. Oh. And so... What happened to our boy, uh, what was his name with the funny hair? Yuli? Yeah. Well, we let him walk. He was, uh, I mean, I hate to say it, he was pretty old. His numbers really weren't that good. He okay. did start doing a lot better in the playoffs, but a lot of people attribute that analytically, at least, to rest. Like, uh, he hit better after having more days off between games. Okay. Sign of old age for sure. Arguably, yes. (laughs) Anyway, so he signed with the Marlins and I mean, he's done okay, but he's not an everyday starter kind of thing. Like there's a cost to bringing a guy on your roster for that reason. So I wish him well, but I understand why we let him go. It's just, if we're going to get the kind of performance we're getting out of Jose Abreu, why not bring the other old guy back? But <laughs> sure, I anyways. gotcha. Well, so what's the record? Are they even close to the top? Or so in their division, they're in second place right now. The Rangers are doing pretty well. The arch enemy. But I think we're only like one or two games back. We're just not playing good baseball. Like it's frustrating to watch when you know they have it in them. Yeah, and they like blow a lead late or you know stuff like that. <laughs> Man. So well, a lot of baseball to play, as they say. Let's fast forward here onto drilling fluids. You know, excited to get behind the mic here. I feel like it's been a couple of weeks, but nonetheless, there's always something to talk about in the mud world. And something that we've done in the past, I believe we've talked about logging, but I think it'd be important to revisit fluid impacts on logging operations. So with regards to logging operations, you know, I got to tell a story, man. We're always about storytelling. And this might sound cliche, but I promise you it's not. As I've alluded to in the past, worked for a drilling contractor. And I'll never forget, when we went to do our first logging operations on a well close to Drayton Valley, 
I was, you know, roughneck and the, I forget who it was, but say, oh, you know, it was a young, eager gentleman looking to please and logging operations and go to the driller and, hey, is there anything you need from me? Like, what can I do? And, oh yeah, I know there's something we need. And of course, when you hear logging, you right away, and especially coming from British Columbia, where the forestry industry is like, so I'm like, oh, I got this. Like logging, yeah. this is right at my thing. Because I worked for a logging or a wood, I don't know what you call it now, but anyway, it was a wood I forget what they call them. But anyway, I worked for a logging company just outside of my hometown growing up. And so I was very familiar with the whole logging situation. So yeah, what do you need from me? And oh, well, okay, go to the tool house and get yourself a hacksaw and a measuring tape and then come back to the rig floor. Okay, do that. Come back. And yeah, he's, he's in Drayton Valley, the lease are basically in the middle of the forest. So there's lots of trees around. And it's like, okay, you need to walk to the end of the lease, go find a log this diameter and this length and cut it down. But the tree has to be old enough. Like you can't cut the trees that are like young and growing. They need to be somewhat mature because it's environmental, this, that, and this. Like gave me like a really strict criteria on like which trees to actually cut. And so of course I run down the V-door, the stairs and go out into the catwalk, jump off, go. Yeah. And then of course I hear hooting and hollering and look back and there's about four or five guys standing on the rig, some laughing, some like waving their hands to come back. And so oh, what did I do wrong? I didn't even get the chance to get the log. And, you know, meanwhile, wireline trucks rigging up. And so I figured like I'd have to get the log and put it on the wireline truck or something <laughs> to that effect. And so of course I was a laughing stock there for a few minutes. Like, oh, you know, we're not doing that. And then finally someone explained like, we're going to put this tool down hole and we're going to collect a bunch of data and it's a science stuff. And I'm like, oh, okay. So I don't need like, do I, should <laughs> so I put this back? Yeah. yeah. Do I put the tools back? Do you need me? And yeah. again, in one of those sort of laughing stocks, but at the end of the day, it's just, you know, if you're not familiar with logging, you would have no idea what you're doing, especially as a rig hand, you just, you're on this big metal jungle and it's like, what next? Right. Yeah. You know, for those who are on rigs and understand what logging operations are, it's critical for the operator to collect really specific data about the formations that we've drilled. And with that being said, there's some strict criteria, not necessarily on what type of logs you need to get, but what the interaction between the fluid and the formations are. And because if not done correctly, you may not get the data you need, so on and so forth. So Matt, let's talk about the fluid impact on downhole logging operations. What do you think? I like it. Okay. Why don't you go ahead and describe it in a little more depth than what I've done and not the forest kind, but yeah, the real yeah. Kind. we'll get away from the timber industry, but yeah, we're just going to talk about a couple of logs here. And there's another episode out there where we've talked a little bit about fluids for logging and having some of these conversations, but we did get sort of a more specific request about fluid interaction. And so first, you know, there's a couple of different logs, but one that's very popular, very common is called spontaneous potential. So basically you've got an electrode at surface, you've got a downhole electrode, you run a current through it and you get basically a baseline where your shale is and then you see it kind of deflect when you encounter a sandstone. But it's going to do this based upon potential. So in light of that, what happens is you think about your mud, which is going to be in the hole when you go run this tool up against the formation. Mm. Anything that leaks from the fluid into the formation is going to affect your possible results. So, for example, if your formation water salinity is different than the mud filtrate. So let's say the filtrate salinity is less than the formation water, the deflection will be a different direction. And if the salinities are almost a match, which sometimes dumb luck, I guess you could end up that way, you won't see as much deflection on the spontaneous potential. So it won't be as obvious where your shales and your sands are, which could create a bit of an issue. These are the kinds of things that a lot of logging folks will actually ask for a filtrate sample mm. to get a baseline. There's also an old school instrument that I haven't seen used in ages. We have one in our lab, 
But you can take the filter cake and like rub it against this probe and it can give you the resistivity across it. These have been used in the past. Honestly, I just haven't seen one in long enough, but I haven't been on a rig in a while either. Yeah, yeah. But basically to get a baseline and say, okay, this is probably what my mud is doing to, so I can correct for what the tool sees. Mm-hmm. And so here, one, have some idea of what's in your mud before you even get started. You will probably get some sort of direction first right. where they're going to be like, hey, don't put this in there. It won't be like, so what's in it? And now we can't log. Yeah. But a couple of interesting things. So the invasion profile of the filtrate, what happens is in a permeable zone, let's say you're drawn through a sand, the filtrate's going to invade, but it's not going to necessarily invade into a shale, which has very low permeability. The filtrate will kind of drift upwards towards the top of that inter- where the shale and the sand meet. So you'll have this like big deflection because you've got a bunch of filtrate up there. And then you may have a smaller deflection as you go a little further down. You could see some kind of like wonky things that might actually tell you where the shale and the sand meet just by looking at spontaneous potential. There's like a few little tells. But one thing that a lot of best practices say is that let's say you're going to break a mud system over or make some significant change. It takes a while for that to appear in the log, but before you make some big change in the mud, see if you can get that logging run in because, you know, what sort of transition are you going to see some issues? And so that's just worth keeping in mind. The other thing is this can only be run in water-based mud because you need potential. So an oil-based mud is non-conductive. And this has been like one of the holy grails of mud is to come up with a conductive oil-based mud just because some of these logs work so well if you could get the oil-based mud performance, but also get the signal clarity and that sort of thing. Right. And a lot of times when you're running logs, it's you're running them in the vertical. I mean, you can run logs, log while you're drilling, perhaps in a lateral, but conventionally speaking, you're running a log, you'll drill down through your reservoir, perhaps, or a certain zone of interest, and you'll log it, try to get the information from those zones, which will be in the vertical. And a lot of times, again, it's in water-based mode, but oftentimes these logging runs, they may not take just a few hours. And so naturally you want your mud to be in good shape. But you're limited on what products you can use. So to your point, and it was not anything that I've really thought about in depth. It was just like, oh, we need water-based mud. But yeah, if you were to have oil-based mud, you could potentially do a lot more sort of data acquisition science stuff if you could be down there for four days, five days, whatever, and just run just a ton of logs. But naturally with water-based mud, that whole sort of the wellbore instability would start to become an issue. Right. You've got this awkward thing of like water-based mud gives you the best signal, but it gives you possibly more risks to your wellbore quality. Mm-hmm. And I mean, kind of tying in another point you're making in the vertical, most of the time you're trying to identify formation tops and sort of figure out, you know, an idea of the structure of the field. And so vertical will probably get you most of what you need, especially in a lot of what we do, because when you kick off into the horizontal, in theory, you're in the producing zone and you don't leave it. So if you know you're in it, you don't need a log to go along the same formation for three miles. Right, right. Not to say people don't want that. And look, there's geosteering. There's other things to make sure you stay in zone that require specific logging while drilling suites. But big picture, that's the reason a lot of times you can just get away with doing the vertical is because that's the way the rock is stacked up. Right, right. So for those who are familiar with hearing about logging operations, gamma is typically a term you hear often, but I don't think a lot of people understand what gamma is. Can you describe what that would be on, with respect to the logging operations? So gamma rays are spontaneous emissions from radioactive elements. But the thing is, like, you have radioactive material everywhere. I mean, obviously, it's not like giving us extra arms and, you know, that kind of, right? It's in very, very low concentrations, but... If you can detect it, for example, you know, something that might tend to accumulate in shales, 
you could tell the difference. So a couple of key isotopes you look for are like potassium-40, which is radioactive and has a fairly long half-life, but like uranium and thorium, you know, it helps you tell the density of the formations. So basically, if you see more radioactive elements, it's probably less dense a rock. Then you combine this with other logs. You say, okay, well, that's probably a shale. You know, it's really dense. This one isn't. And you start getting some idea of different elements, and it can kind of clue you in on some of the mineralogy. And gamma kind of, there's different kinds of gamma. I'm not a logging expert, so it's probably pretty safe. I could say whatever I want because I doubt anybody who's in logging is listening to this. That being said, natural gamma ray spectroscopy, it's like the number and the amount of energy is used to determine the, the concentration of radioactive material in any rock. And basically some things will absorb gamma rays readily and others won't. But something that can happen is bayrite. Bayrite is used in radiation shielding sometimes. So sometimes if you want to run gamma spectroscopy, you might find yourself in a situation where they say, this needs to be a bayrite-free fluid because I don't want it absorbing my radioactive, my neutrons or whatever, and blocking me out from being able to get a reading. I mean, we've encountered this not too long ago with a fluid. And what was it? We drilled the section that needed logged. Bayrite-free was more expensive. Yeah. They ran their log, and then we broke the mud system over to something cheaper. Yeah. But it was necessary for the information that the customer needed to acquire. The other thing is, you know, I mentioned that potassium, and you look at the ratios of some of these isotopes as well, but potassium-40 is radioactive. We get that. But I have encountered times when they say, don't use any potassium because we don't want any introduced. But you're not adding the radioactive isotope that has a billionaire half-life or whatever. But all that being said, being aware of some of these things that might affect your reading, that might limit the amount of information you can acquire. Yeah. These are conversations you want to have before the expensive tools show up. <laughs> yes. Those are the two specifically that we were asked about. The hard part for me is I don't know enough about logging with respect to how much better they've gotten over time, with respect to, to overcome. how much noise you can't have. Yeah. Because we don't get a ton of direction on this very often, but we have seen things with just very specific random requests where they say, can you make a fluid that doesn't have this? Yeah. But the trigger there also is if they say, hey, it shouldn't have bayrite in it, understanding why not. Because the people that provide these tools might say, oh, well, okay, like I can get like strontium carbonate or something. So let's pretend you probably can't. Something else that's very similar to bayrite maybe creates the exact same issue. And trying to find out, okay, like, is this still going to work? Or do you just have written somewhere in your little book, don't use Bayrite yeah. without the why? Because we probably want to know that. Yeah. And to your point, depending on the complexity of the logging run and what kind of data they're trying to collect, it could be as simple as the operator saying an email, say, hey, this next well, or, you know, there's this well on this upcoming pad. We can't use X, Y, Z. Send me a proposal on what you're going to do. And then we'll get to the lab. We'll design something given the criteria. And then we'll say, here's what we're using, blah, blah, blah. And then it could be good enough. Or I've been involved with some cases where we actually have to send a sample of the lab that we built to their like lab that they're using on the reservoir team or whatever, yeah. to some third-party team that's then evaluating it for certain molecules or whatever it is that they're looking at, certain properties and certain chemicals within the system to where it can, you know, again, like a lot of communication back and forth, a lot of design work, a lot of very strict guidelines in terms of what you can pump and We've even had, well, there needs to be this tracer. And then you have to like do some testing and figure out how to apply it at what rates. And so again, it could be super simple or it could get pretty complex. But at the end of the day, like you said, it's understanding what your limitations are and having these conversations well beforehand to prepare, have the right products, do the right testing in the lab if necessary. But yeah, there's no real one size fits all. And 
for the most part, in unconventional, like we said before, a lot of this stuff has already been done. But, you know, some operators may be kind of pushing the boundaries in their acreage and looking for some more information. And you may have to get a little bit tricky with it. Yeah, I think there have been a couple of times where we were asked something involving a tracer where it was, you know, it was like a nitrate-based tracer. But we weren't going to run it and titrate it or anything like that, which was fine, except for in the mud design aspect was like, well, I could use... Like people sometimes run calcium ammonium nitrate or they run some of these other things that is exactly what was going to be your tracer. Like yeah. I would have totally diluted out what you were looking for. And let's just make sure now, granted, it doesn't happen often enough, but we'll see it sometimes even things can't fluoresce for the mud logger. And so they say, look, I can't have any hydrocarbons, even like a diluent in a lubricant. You yeah. say, okay, well then we do have, you know, bio-based stuff that's not going to have hydrocarbon content, but mm-hmm. let's make 100% sure that's what you're looking for. And that's the only limitation that you have. Right. Because a lot of these folks, like you said, you know, some of these folks have never been on a rig before, or maybe they haven't been on a rig in a very long time. They don't understand drilling operations. And so they're the ones that might say, well, as long as you keep it below this, and right. you're like, there's no way someone's going to kick open a valve. Something's going to happen. Like, yeah. It just can't be on the rig. Like, if you want to be successful, let's just not even include this as a possibility. Yeah. I mean, we were given, again, to that same discussion is from an operator, we were given specific instructions from a third-party company that they were using for a tracer that required us to stay within a range of, like, parts per million. Right. And that's all they gave us. And so we were scrambling trying to calculate, like... Because ultimately, you have to tell the mud engineer, like, add this much of this. And if you tell them you can't have more than 17 parts per million, they'll be like, huh? Uh, yeah, <laughs> How many exactly. pounds per barrel is this? Like, And so, yeah, and then there were, like, several calculations. One said to add this much, one said to add that much. And, again, just these things do come up. So you got to take time to figure it out and make sure the operator and anyone else involved is on the same page and gives the green lights. So, cause this stuff's not cheap, you know, especially if you're down a day or two and then all of a sudden you use the wrong concentration of some fancy product, someone's going to be looking at like, okay, what happened? And you don't want to be left holding the bag. No, these are expensive operations and fluids can really have an impact on what information you get. And the whole reason you spend the money is because... That's the thing. A lot of the people asking for this stuff, like the people that are like, hey, you need to shut down the rig for half a day right. and run this thing, typically have a lot bigger budget. Like they're developing a field development plan or something. They're telling somebody who's over an asset, I can't do my job without this information. Right. And so it's way more than, ah, oh, this might raise your mud bill up a little bit. Right. It's like, Let's have a clear understanding of what you need, why you need it, and what we can do to make sure this is going to be successful. Because this is much bigger probably than, yeah. this is like how much CapEx you're going to apply to a region, you know? Yeah, no, is, that's a good point. So big decisions being made, you know, lots of need for quality information. And I think the other part of this is we've seen some of these logs where it's like the kink at the log to bottom or mm. with wireline or, oh, we're going to try and log on pipe now, but it's not as data centric because we have to use memory modules. We're not acquiring it as we go or whatever those sort of things are. If you can tighten up the mud and normally you'll get permission to do these things like minimize filtrate invasion. So there's limited interaction, keep the mud cake thin. And then anything else you might need for an extended period, like this may be the reason that you want to add something that's going to help with wellbore stability, or it may be the reason that you might want something to address swelling clays is, look, you know, I know normally we'll slam casing on bottom of the intermediate in, you know, a few hours, but if this takes a couple of days and I can't get that log through because things have creeped or swollen a little bit, like Mm -hmm. this is a little bit of insurance for a fairly expensive operation. 
So those are the times that it's worth having those conversations and kind of just once again, getting your head around the whole picture. Right. Because I think most of the time we receive a list of demands as opposed to like, hey, well, why is this important? Because it sounds really important to you. It needs to be important to me. Let me make sure there's nothing else in my mud other than what you told me to keep out. I mean, when people say, hey, you can't have KCL, it's like, all right, well, I put in potassium acetate. Right. Wait, that also has potassium. Well, you just told me I can't have KCL. Like, well, I meant KCL because like, yeah, it's like, I don't know that. Like, (laughs) you know? Yeah, no, always ask more questions. And if you're unsure, double check, because there's certainly certain things that you'd be like, oh, I was thinking about asking that, but I didn't. And then here you are. One thing, Matt, on just from like the operations side of things is in some areas, there's some practices that say, oh, you're talking about considering you know, other practice for extended static periods, meaning you're going to sit there in open hole for an extended amount of time. In some cases, operators like to increase you know, viscosity, which is, doesn't sound that crazy, but there are certain things to help get logs to bottom in certain areas that you know, you'll ramp up viscosity or tighten fluid loss. And again, the cost for cheap insurance by way of increasing your mud bill a little bit to get logs to bottom for them to get data oftentimes will not be frowned upon. So if you have ideas and you think you're going to be in open hole for an extended period of time, bring up the conversation because you might save yourself in that case. But again, good conversation, good question. What else, Matt, anything? I mean, I hope we didn't butcher that too much. I guess, you know, I was trying to just reflect on my experience and my conversations. At first, I tried to to get into the weeds on how some of this stuff works. I was like, this is even worse to talk about, given my limited understanding. Yeah. On top of Like there are a few papers out there, but once again, they're so dated that I'm like, I'm sure some of these things have gotten better. Some of these things have never changed. But at the end of the day, it's all about a conversation, like you said. And I think keep in mind that these things are expensive enough that the logging company is kind of king here. In a lot of ways, you've heard our tirades about directional companies making absurd demands for things to help their tools work that don't make any sense. There are some of those rules of thumb that logging companies provide. And unless you see it introducing risk or creating problems, they probably can't tell you why they require it, but they've always done it. And you may as well just kind of fall in line and go with it unless you see a real operational risk. Yeah. So I've encountered a few of these things where you just accept it because arguing with somebody whose customers already spending a bunch of money with, and look, we got to do whatever they say because if this thing gets lost in the hole or if there's some other issue, like we're going to follow their best practices a hundred percent. Yeah then there's no point in having the discussion because the way they're thinking about cost is not the same way you are. Right. You can still bring it up, but expect to get ruled out and just say, look, I just want to make sure we have this conversation, but if you still want to make the fluid thick or do this or whatever, yeah. like we'll do it. I don't really understand how this is going to help. If it helps you sleep at night and helps me not worry about getting run off, then let's do it. Yeah, <laughs> that's a great point, man. It's something that I'm sure most out there are well familiar with, but worth a conversation. Hopefully we answered some questions out there, cleared some of the air. If you have any further questions on this topic, or if you're someone that has been involved with logging or wireline operations, and perhaps we missed on something, or you want to help dive into anything a little further, reach out via LinkedIn, or you can hit us up at the Flowline Podcast at aesflues.com. Again, we only look at this from one side of the fence, but if anyone understands logging operations much better than we do, you may have something to add, which we'd be really happy to hear from. Yeah. I mean, I'm especially curious about the potassium thing just because I've heard this, but I've only heard like, oh, don't put potassium in there because it could screw up with the log. But I'm like, well, if one's an isotope, does it affect, I guess, unless you have a specific detection between two different isotopes? Anyways, that's one I'm a little bit curious about because I've been told not to, but that's the one where I'm like, okay, no, won't do it, but why? 
Yeah. So, yeah. Cool. Anyways. Well, with that said, if anyone's listening and you may have a friend or someone you've worked with in the logging industry, fire this episode to them and just say, hey, Matt and Justin, we're curious. You know, if you listen towards the end, Matt had a question. Again, we're always trying to learn. We're always trying to be better. And then, you know, on the same token, there's educating our audience and just creating value for the whole ecosystem. And LinkedIn, again, AES Fluids, we have our page, follow us. We have a bunch of content that is continuously being put out there for the audience. And for those who are following along the AES journey, our website has a ton of information. It keeps getting updated with just more information about products and just the overall company. We've got the YouTube channel. We've got the tech tips for those who like to learn visually. We've got a lot of good videos out there. Matt, what else? Am I missing anything? I don't know. That, get started there. Okay. Reach out if you need something. If you've looked at all those things and still haven't learned anything, <laughs> <Yeah>. call me. <laughs> Perfect. Share, subscribe, review. All the best, everyone. Take care for now. Until next time, see ya. Take care. Thanks for listening. Please tune in next week for another exciting episode of The Flow Line. And remember, may your returns always be full and your trips always smooth. Views expressed in this program belong to participants and not their employees. The program is for informational purposes only and cannot take the place of seeking professional advice. Copyright AES Drilling Fluids.